This morning, when we're looking at John 2, we're looking at Jesus' first sign. And the Gospel of John often talks about Jesus' miracles and calls them signs. In fact, the word miracle wouldn't be in the Bible unless you translated signs, wonders, or powers from three Greek words and translate at least one of them miracle, or you wouldn't have that word in the Bible. And the word miracle can have some subjective subjectivity to it, where it might not have the same meaning to it. But I think you see what we're talking about when we're talking about miracles. A sign is a sign from God. It's a wonder. It's a wonderful thing. And is it a power that comes from God? So, as we look at this, we look at Jesus' first sign. Why did Jesus do miracles in the first place? Why did He do them? Are they simply in the Bible to demonstrate His compassion and His greatness? Or is there more to the miracle? A lot of people today say, you know, miracles can't occur. I don't think they occur. A lot of people will say that while they say they still believe in God and they still believe in Jesus. I think that's a very strange thing to say because if God exists, then miracles exist. God can act on His creation. He doesn't have to obey the natural laws because He is the one who set them in order. He's the one who created the universe and created the heavens and the earth and did it all in the very beginning. Why did Jesus do miracles is what we want to look at this morning. And we're going to look at this first sign from Jesus, and I think it is very, very helpful. What's the most amazing thing that you've ever seen? Maybe, can you think of something that it just seems unexplainable? Where if you've ever told somebody something, you don't even know if they would believe it. It might have been something, it might have been a, a sports event, it might have been something that you've seen on a road, it might have been an accident. There are certain things that we see. It might have been why you've been out in the field and hunting. And I've got, you know, things that you think about and, and stories that I just wouldn't imagined had have, would have happened. But as we look at the things that Jesus did, and some of the things that are unexplainable in this world, it makes perfect sense to me that the Son of God would come and that He would do things that would be amazing, that would be wonderful. Acts of compassion that could not be explained unless... He is who He says He is. That He came from God. And we gather here this morning as Christians because we believe that. And we believe that He is the Christ and we believe that He did great and mighty wonders. At this time, I want to read from John chapter 2. Jesus' first sign. It says His first sign in Galilee. Is this His first miracle? It's often called His first miracle. It is the first miracle that we read about in the Gospels. And what we want to do is read this, and we want to draw from it, and what happens here at the wedding in Cana. So if you have your Bible, let's open up to John chapter 2, and let's read verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to make some observations, and I hope that you will do that along with me. John 2, verses 1 through 11, this is what we read. And on the third day, this is the third day after Jesus has gathered his new disciples. He has five disciples now who are with him as he is gathering his disciples throughout his first year of ministry. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. This might have been a relative. It might have been somebody that they are connected with as far as family. This land, the, the um, place of Canaan appears to be nine miles north of Nazareth. And that would have been about a half a day's journey. Look at verse 3 now. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now the woman, the term woman here in Greek is a term of endearment. 
But the other phrase here, what does this have to do with me, is something where Jesus is setting himself aside from this. He says next, listen to what he says, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, she's confident, listen to what Mary says, do whatever he tells you. She already knows that he's going to do it. How does she know that? How does she know that Jesus is going to do something here in regards to there not being any wine here at the wedding? How would she already know that? We'll think about that more in a moment. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So you're talking about these jars that can hold 120 to 180 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast is a place of honor. There would be someone who is designated in the family to make sure that everything was going in the way that it should. That was his job. And here Jesus has been called upon. And so they took it. They took it to the master of the feast. Verse 9, it says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone who serves the good, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you kept the good wine until now. And this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. His disciples were already following him. John the Baptist said, look, here's the Lamb of God, and they were following him. But it says here, because of this sign, this miracle that had occurred, that they believe in him. Was that enough? Was it enough to see a miracle, to see this wonder? Was it, enough to, it was enough here, that as we, we read from the disciples, that they were, are convinced. There's some fascinating things that, we, that stand out in the text here. In fact, this is one of those passages I often hear that people bring up a lot. And usually it has nothing to do with the fact of look at the power of Christ. Look at his first miracle. It's, it's more of, well, Jesus turned water to wine, therefore. You might know where I'm going with that. You might have heard that, that reasoning before. And, and sometimes I think that's often a distraction to this study. But I want to look at it and make a few observations about it, and I'll comment a little bit on the wine in a moment. But this is some things that I see here. Mary already knew that Jesus could do miracles. It appears to me that Jesus had demonstrated some way before that he had the power to do this. And so it may not have been this first act of power, of doing a wonder. Another thing that I observe here, again, we see Jesus' ministry. When Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, what is he saying? He's saying, my journey... And he's saying this to his mother. My journey to the cross, to the sacrifice that I'm going to give, whether she understood that fully or not, he says, it has not yet come. The ministry had not yet began. You see, it was a few, it was a little bit of time before the Passover, but Jesus' ministry started at the Passover and it ended at a Passover. And the Gospel of John emphasizes this. And that's how we count because of the Gospel of John that Jesus' ministry, most believe, was three years long. Because of the Passovers noted throughout. In John 2, John 5, John 6, and I believe John 11. And as you look at those Passovers, you put that together. Anyways, Jesus becomes our Passover lamb. And he's saying to, the, to his mother here, time has not yet begun. Another observation I take here is that Jesus didn't hold back. They, he could have just said, let's take one 
of these stone containers. 20 to 30 gallons, wouldn't that be enough? I mean, how many people are at this wedding feast? If you've got 150 people, and that's the number, 150 gallons, everybody's going to get a gallon of this wine, as the text says. The Greek word for wine is oinos. Sometimes the Bible talks about there being wine in the grape. What kind of wine would that be? Well, that would just be the grape juice. And I think a lot of people confuse today, and they will justify and, and use this passage as far as moderate drinking and, and claim that, see, Jesus turned water to wine. And I, would, I would encourage you to be very careful about that because what did Jesus do here? The wine that we use today is not like um, wine back then. The wine today uses a genetically modified yeast. And, um, you know, I do a lot of my research. You might see me in public just standing in the wine aisle reading bottles. No, I don't do that. That would be kind of funny, but I, actually I have done that before, but don't tell anybody. Uh, I stood there, and I, you know, you read the back of them, and the alcohol level goes up from 12 to 18%. But why back then, unless you put extra yeast in it and you put um, sugar in it, then the level of alcohol reaches a point, and you can read this. There's University of California, Davis is, you know, the experts on wine and how to make it. At that point, about 10% the alcohol begins to kill the yeast. And so in the ancient times, you wouldn't get above 10%. Now, wine today has a lot more alcohol than that. Another thing to note here is that this is called the good wine. In contrast to what? You remember in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 28 that Paul says to Timothy, he says, take a little wine for your stomach's sake, and, and he says to do it with water. And that was the custom back then, was to, to mix them two together. Here, what Jesus is making, and he makes a whole bunch of it. He doesn't hold back. He fills the brim. He's got six pots of it. He makes 120 to 180 gallons of this wine or grape juice. If it has fermentation in it, I don't think Jesus at all added any sugar or yeast to it, which lowers the content down a little bit further. You know, I've, I've been in some churches where someone forgot to pick up the communion. You ever been the person who's picked it up? And you uncover it during the week, and the yeast has formed on the top of it, and it's already begun to ferment. It takes about a week for that to happen, to take grape juice. And it can ferment, and it can turn, and the alcohol level can rise up to about 3%. But it doesn't go beyond that, not unless you add yeast or sugar. So as we start looking at this, I just I don't see that this is a good passage, and I would definitely not use it to justify um, a lot of what people have used it to justify today. And so when I look at it, it's not the same kind of wine, but I do know this about what Jesus made. It was the best kind. It was not watered down. It was most likely fresh. And I think what makes the miracle even greater is that this is before Passover. It's just after Passover when they pulled in the first grapes and the first fruit of the grapes when it would be fresh. And it's at this time of the year that it would be very hard to find anything that fresh. What I understand and I see here in the text is that Jesus made the best that he could. He made what nobody else could have had at this time. And he made so much of it, an abundance of it. There are other things here in the text that I could talk about or why I don't think that this is a, you know, alcoholic wine. Another thing here, well, one of the things was is in, in John 10 and verse, John chapter 2 and verse 10, the master of the feast says they had well drunk of what was left. And here Jesus was making more. more. The word there for well drunk in Greek 
is often translated they had become intoxicated or drunk or filled themselves. It either means one or the other. And so depending on how you interpret the word wine here, you would have to reinterpret that, that they had drank a lot of alcoholic wine and gotten drunk, and Jesus made a whole bunch more of it, or that they had drunk a lot of this um, natural wine, this unfermented grape juice, and that Christ had made more. I would make the case that you consider that. But I want us to think a little bit for, for, further here about the miracle, the wonder of it. Who can take water and turn it into grape juice, the fruit of the grape? Well, God can. Jesus can. And that's what He does. And He does it here as a sign. And He does it here and so that His disciples believe. It is something that all the people there in the land of Canaan would have seen and would have understood. And would say, here's the water that has been turned into something greater, something amazing. God does that. And what we read here in the text and we read throughout the Gospel of John, we continue to read miracles. There are eight miracles in the Gospel of John. The other Gospels have 20 or more that are specifically named. But John limits them to eight. And he gets into, that's not eight, is it? That's eight. So there's eight of them. Eight miracles in the Gospel of John. How can anyone believe the miracles recorded in the Bible, though? I think a lot of people come to the Bible and say, okay, there's miracles in it, but for me to believe the miracles, don't I already have to believe the Bible? For me to believe the Bible, what, don't I have to already believe the miracles? And so, many people struggle with this. What does the Bible tell us? What are we supposed to do with these miracles and these signs that we're reading in here? Are they just to tell us that Jesus was a great man? And as long as I believe the Bible, then I'm going to believe the miracles, and it's going to strengthen my faith. Let's read. Let's think about this. Let's listen to what Jesus has to say. Let's stay in the Gospel of John. If you have your Bible, go to John chapter 5 and look at verse 36. Go to John chapter 5 and verse 36 and read this with me. Jesus offers His miraculous works. For what? Why does He do them? He does them to demonstrate that He is the Son of God. They were evidence at that time, but are they meant to be evidence today? We're going to talk about that. We'll look at it a little bit further. But read with me. John 5, verse 36 says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. He says, John is a witness that I'm the Son of God and that I've come. He has prepared the way. And then he says this, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And very clearly, as you read the text, he's talking about his works, the miraculous works, the signs that he's been doing. They demonstrate and they testify that God is with me and that he has sent me so that you may see and that you may believe. There's another passage I want to share with you in John. While you're still, go over to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And look now in verses 37 and 38. John 10, 37, 38. Here Jesus gives a challenge. To those who are questioning him. And we're going to bring this up again in a moment. But Jesus' opponents, they never questioned that he could do miracles. They never said he was a fraud, that he was trying to trick people. They did say, we think you have the power from Satan, from Beelzebub. That you're not doing it from God. You're just trying to deceive from somebody else. So he's not doing illusions here. They never questioned that. But Jesus stands up to those opponents. And we read a little bit of his discussion here in John 10. Look at verses 37 and 38. Jesus says, If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. 
If I'm not doing the works, don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. Jesus is saying, you might not believe what I'm saying, what I'm saying to you, but you need to look at the works that I'm doing. If you believe those works, then believe that God is working through me. And he says this, believe the works that you may know, listen to this, you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus puts these miracles forward and he says, I do them and I do them as signs so that you may believe. And I believe them. I read the accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I read these witnesses and I'll read them attesting that Jesus did these wonderful things. And I believe them. I see no contradiction before them. I see that vast witnesses and numbers of people saw Jesus doing these things. And I believe them. That meets the standard of evidence. To have two or more witnesses of an event to confirm that it is, has occurred. And here Jesus, again, he's talking and says, believe the works so that you may believe in me. Believe the works. And as Christians today, can we make that same plea to others? Can we say to others, listen, believe that Jesus did miracles. Believe that he did the works of God. Can we make a strong case for that? As I brought up earlier, you might sometimes hear things in the news that it's hard to believe. Maybe lately. It seems like every week I, I, you know, I read an article or something and I'm saying, I don't know about that. I don't know if I can believe that. There are some things that I read, and I, and I believe it, and I think, well, even though I see that and I see the evidence for it, I don't think my neighbor next door or somebody in my family is going to believe this. What does it take to believe? What does it take to have faith in God? As I mentioned at the very beginning, I think one of the greatest things we've seen, the greatest miracle we can see every day, is we look at God's creation we wake up, we look around us, we see the things that are made, we look at one another. Where did we come from? Where did all of this come from? And, and I like the Gospel of John, and this is where it connects with the book of Genesis. John chapter 1, you remember John 1, you probably quote John 1, 1 most of us in here. But you get a picture of what some would consider the greatest miracle of all, and that is the creation of everything of the universe, of the heavens and the earth, as we read about in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But look here in John chapter 1, verses 1, 1 through 3. If you can't already quote it, I encourage you to look at it again in your Bible. John chapter 1, 1 through 3. It says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word. The Word by which God spoke everything into existence. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was there. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As we go a little bit further in John chapter 1 and verse 14, John the Apostle says, That Word became flesh and dwelt among us, who is Jesus Christ, by which grace and truth has come to us. But we keep reading here, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Keep reading verse 2. He was in the beginning with God, and all things, all things, everything, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything was created by God, by the word that he had spoken, and brought these things into existence. We wake up every day being able to see miracles, the hand and work of God. The critics and the skeptics can't tell you where everything came from, where the universe came from. They might suppose that it came from nothing, or they might say that it just popped into existence from some... Um, a temporal void, a field beyond that is supernatural, beyond the natures of this world. 
and it has no mind and no intelligence, but for some reason it popped the whole universe into existence. You know what makes sense to me? It makes sense to me that God created the heavens and the earth. That's what we believe. We believe this world and our lives have purpose and meaning. And without that, if everything just came into existence from nothing, there would be no meaning or purpose. There wouldn't be no standard for morality of right and wrong, of good and evil. All those things would simply disappear. I could expand further on that, but this is what I see at the beginning of the Gospel of John. In chapter 1, I see that Christ is the answer, that God, by a spoken word, brought all things into existence. That great miracle we're able to see. And the Bible tells us today we should believe it because of that. You remember Psalm 19 and verse 1? The psalmist says there that we're able to look and to adore and to believe because we could see God's handiwork in creation. Romans chapter 1 tells us the same thing. Now that I've brought you to John 1, I'm going to go near the end of the Gospel of John and John 20. In John 20, verses 30 to 31, you might be familiar with this scripture as well. Why are these miracles recorded in the Gospel of John? They're recorded for us today. It's recorded for those of you who can read, who can read the Bible. And most people say their favorite book in the Bible is the Gospel of John. That's by far the most favorited book in all of the Bible. And if you haven't read the Bible and you, 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 you might be intimidated by it, start with John. I encourage you to do that. Look here in John 20, verses 30 and 31, and this is what we read from the Apostle John as he's writing it. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That you may believe and have eternal life. That you may believe that He is the Christ, that He is the Son of God. The miracles are there to convince us. For us to say, as we look at Matthew, Martin, Luke, and John, were these things made up? Were they invented? No, they're there for us today. And there's no reason for us to, as Christians with boldness to not stand and say, yes, everything that come in, comes, has come into existence by God's work and it came through Jesus Christ. That Christ did all these miracles. He demonstrates Jesus that He is the Son of God. And the other miracle I would put next to saying all creation being the greatest miracle, the only, only other one I would compare to that would be Jesus resurrecting from the dead. Him coming to life and promises that one day we will do the same. These miracles are written in the Bible for us to believe. So can we make a strong appeal by the miracles we read about in the Scriptures? And I would say yes. And I think as we look at this, there are some fascinating things that stand out to me, some historical evidence that can be drawn from the Bible. And I'm going to conclude with a few points here on that. But what evidence does support that Jesus of Nazareth did miracles? If you went up about about 40 years ago back into academia and among historians, most of them would say, oh, Jesus didn't do miracles. There's been a long period of time of skepticism over centuries, people doubting that Christ and Jesus could do miracles. But things have changed recently. Critical scholars have been coming out and saying, okay, we think Jesus did miracles, but um, some of them say, we think it's psychosomatic. He believed he was doing it, and then people believed it, and they actually were healed because of it. And why are they saying that? Because they began to look at the evidence. There's a lot more evidence now. And Christians are taking a stronger stand 
before scholars who have been criticizing the Bible and saying, listen, look at all the evidence. One of the strongest ones is the resurrection of Christ, that we know that he was crucified. We know that he was buried. It's historical fact. We know this tomb was found empty. We know various witnesses saw him resurrected from the dead. We know the church started because of that. And those evidences are put out there today before these critics, and they have nothing they can say about it. They have no alternative to it. I would plead with you as well as we start thinking about this. There are other things that you cannot deny about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth came preaching. He's a great Jewish teacher. He's recognized in history. Crowds of people followed him. You see people doing that today. Maybe some people will follow. Crowds of people will meet at certain places, but follow him for days to follow him out in the wilderness. And the answer was, what would cause all these people to follow Jesus? And the Bible tells us that it's because of the miracles that he did. And I don't know of any historians who deny that today, that people believed he was doing great miracles and they followed him in crowds. I think that's a great evidence. I look at the Gospels that we've been talking about. There are witnesses that Jesus did miracles. You know, whether the critics say, well, we don't know if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote those Gospels. They can... They can say that all they want. The evidence, I think, is overwhelmingly against them. But then they turn around and say, well, Christians did write it in the first century. And where do they get their information from? And they'll say, well, people who knew Jesus and lived with him. They still admit it. That the Gospels are witnesses. We also see passages like in Isaiah 35 and verses 5 and 6 and Isaiah 42 verses 6 and 7 that tells us when the Messiah comes, he's going to do miracles. They're predicted. It was already predicted. We see the nature of Jesus' miracles and not like anything else in the ancient world. In the ancient world, people do miracles for money. Jesus never did it for those reasons. It never was for selfish reason. As noted before, the opponents of Jesus were often saying, well, yes, you can do miracles, but you're not doing it by God. Again, affirming these hostile witnesses that Jesus was doing them. Jesus defended his source of power in detail. Mark chapter 9, you can read about that a little bit further. Verses 14 through 29. We see this, that when the church began and the apostles and the evangelists went out proclaiming the gospel, they would go and they'd say to the people, you know Jesus and you should believe in him. Why? Because you also know the miracles that he did. You saw them. That was their preaching. That's what started the church is that they were saying, you know who Jesus was. You know his teaching. You saw his wonderful works. And we're here to tell you he also resurrected from the dead. And people became Christians and were baptized. Historians do not call that into question, that that was what was preached and that was what was happening when the church began. And then, as noted before, various witnesses of Jesus' resurrection started the church. All these things attest that Jesus did miracles. They demonstrate, when we look at these things, and we're reading through the Gospel of John this week, I want you to think about Jesus, his nature. Think about the works that he did. What, what do these works, these signs show about who he is? What do they demonstrate about his compassion and his power? What do they tell us about God? Does God love us? Is God all-powerful? Can we trust in him and his promises? Yes, we believe that. And we see it in Christ. When we read the Gospel of John, it gives us every confidence to live every day for Jesus, to give our lives to him. If Jesus' miracles are effective evidence, I think we as Christians should be using it today. We should say, how do you explain these things? 
I want to finish with the words of Jesus from John chapter 10. Staying in the Gospel of John. John chapter 10, 25 to 27 is our invitation this morning. As we think about the miracles and the works of Christ, His power and His compassion, and we look at the overwhelming evidence and support to help us and encourage us to believe and have faith. This is what Jesus said in John 10, 25 to 27. He said to these unbelievers, He says, and this is the question that often, this is why I'm bringing this up, is many people are still, even though they're going to hear the evidence, many people are still not going to believe. Why? Jesus says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If you don't want to listen to Christ, if you don't want to follow his teachings, if you don't want to follow after him, then yes, you can ignore the miracles and you can live in unbelief. For those of us who hear the words of Jesus, we, I think about Jesus' words in John 7, 17, 7, 17, where he says, if you want to do the will of God, you will know whether my teaching comes from God. I encourage you this morning as you think about this great miracle and think about Jesus turning the water to wine, as we read it through the Gospel of John, we reflect, reflect on those miracles. This morning, if you believe and you're willing to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He rose from the dead, you can repent of your sins, you can be baptized in water, and you can rise up into the newness of life. Jesus teaches in John chapter 3, He says, You must be born of the water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. John 3 and verse 5. This morning, if you want to put on Christ in baptism, you need prayers. We encourage you to come right now. Let's sing together.